a slave can stand directly in the presence of his master. And if he has been a freed slave, that master can yell out all the orders that he wants, but that slave does not have to obey that master. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans chapter 6, we have been looking at how we are changed when we're saved and come under the submission of Jesus Christ. In our message entitled, How to Really Change, we begin part two today and look at how believers are freed from the bondage of sin. John the Baptist, after a year of ministry, was imprisoned by Herod and he found himself in prison. And his disciples came to the Lord Jesus and the Lord had them quote this portion of scripture what do you mean set the captives free i'm in prison there's a freedom that god has that goes way beyond incarceration many of god's people are in prison i'm praying right now for a pastor in iran and a a brother who's just been sentenced to eight years in prison for being a christian Set the captives free. How so, Lord Jesus? Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He's speaking not just of the penalty of sin, but the power of sin over the person's life. And so we're talking about how to really change. We began this sermon last week, but I told you we couldn't finish it until this week. And by God's grace, we're here to do that. We've seen that the book of Romans has three principal divisions. We're in the doctrinal section of Romans, which is chapters 1 through 8. And each section in turn divides into three parts. And so we're dealing with that topic of sanctification. He dealt first with condemnation, how we are guilty. And it's a very despairing picture in 118 to 320. But when you come to chapter 3 and verse 21, the words, but now, break in and burst forth with light. And he speaks about how God saves us and redeems us through the cross. That's justification. Now we're dealing with sanctification. One deals with our position. The other deals with our practice. One happens in a second. The other is lifelong. Follow along, would you? Romans 6, we want to begin in verse 12 where we left off. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I really want us to get what Paul is saying in Romans 6, so I'm going to review briefly this morning. To appreciate verses 12 to 14, we have to understand 1 through 11, so let me walk you again into the context. If you remember, at the end of 5, where he finishes his discourse on justification, he makes the incredible statement that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Where there's more sin, there is more grace. And Paul, using a first century um, means of argument called diatribe, anticipating the objections that his listeners would have, and we've seen him do this already three times in Romans, anticipating their objections... He asks a question in 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
because you see there would be people in Paul's day who accused him as he preached the gospel from synagogue to synagogue. There were people in Christ's day who did the same with him. And there would be people who would read this letter who would argue with the Apostle Paul. Oh, you preachers who say that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, you're giving people the best of both worlds. They can be saved and guaranteed a spot in heaven while at the same time you're encouraging lawlessness. They can have the best of both worlds, heaven in the next and sin in this world. Well, sin in this world is not the best that God has for anyone. And then there are those supposed Christians, even in our day, who say, well, pastor, I know I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I know I'm not living for the Lord. I know I'm a rebel. And I know when I get to heaven, I may not have much, maybe just a little old log cabin in the corner of heaven, but hallelujah, I'm going to heaven. Friend, people who think that way typically are not saved. And so Paul is dealing with this whole subject of grace that motivates to godly living. So he asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And then he simply says, meganoita, may it never be. Perish the thought, by no means, don't be ridiculous. What a ghastly thought. There's as many translations as there are uh, Bibles in that there's so many ways you can render the Greek, but that's the essence of it. Not on your life. The grace of God does not teach us to presume The grace of God does not motivate to sin, not if you've had a real encounter with the saving grace of God. So Paul wants to make it very clear, verse 3, or do you not know? And again, he's asking us to know something. He doesn't say, or do you not feel, or do you not experience, but do you not know? There's something in your mind, something that you need to be aware of. And so we saw that there's three key words that are critical to the Christian's victory. And I don't call it the secret to victory. I I get a little dismayed when someone says, well, here's three secrets. Now, that sells books, and it puts it in people's hands. And I suppose that's okay if they're going to get into the Word of God, but this is not some secret. Nor do I want you to think that this is just some little formula. You cannot dismiss chapter 6 from chapter 7 and 8, and that's why I told you I don't want you to miss a single message as we work through these three chapters. If you're going to be gone on a Sunday, please go and download it and listen to it because I want you to understand this unit because if you do, it will change your life. Or do you not know there's something that we must know, some very important information? He repeats the word in verse 6 with the word knowing and again in verse 9 with the word knowing. I have all of those underlined. That's the first key word and we spoke of our new realization. There's something you need to realize. There's something you need to know if you've been saved, if you've been born again. But what you will find most often in the Bible is that God will give you knowledge and then based on that knowledge, he'll ask you to do something. Now, God, I suppose, wouldn't have to do that. God being God, he could just say, do it. And we would say, yes, sir. He doesn't have to give us an explanation. But being the God of grace and compassion that he is, Most of the time when he says don't do something or do something, he gives us the reason and the motivation behind it. So here's the problem that we've been studying. When we are born into this world, we are identified with Adam. We are in Adam. That's the fifth chapter. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in and with Adam. We were in the loins of Adam. So everyone who's descended from Adam is born with the same fallen nature that Adam left us. We're conceived in sin. And so by nature, by birth, by bent, we have a proclivity towards sin. 
And so when you get saved, you don't shed that Adamic nature, but you receive a new capacity, what Colossians calls a new man. You have a new ability that you didn't have before you were saved. And he speaks about that. And so the issue is, how do I live out of my new capacity, my new man, where I can have victory? How do I really, truly change? Don't you know, he asks, verse 3, that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. And we saw that there's no water in verses 3 and 4. Now, there are baptismal regenerationalists who teach that baptism is part of the plan of salvation. That's a different gospel. You go to any church and they teach that baptism is necessary to salvation, you are in a church that is teaching a different gospel. It's the same error that Paul had to confront in Galatia. No, there's no water in these two verses. Now, water baptism illustrates these two verses because the word baptize has two critical meanings in the New Testament. One, to immerse. And so when one is brought under, it is a picture of death, burial, and brought up of resurrection. The secondary meaning is that of identification. Paul spoke, spoke of those who were baptized into Moses. That is, they were identified with the leadership of Moses as they walked through on dry ground through those two walls of water as they crossed the Red Sea. Many times in the Bible, the word baptized can mean different things. John the Baptist spoke of being baptized with fire speaking of the coming judgment upon unbelievers. The Lord Jesus spoke about baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, but in addition, he says, we've been baptized into his death. And the death here, of course, is a reference to when he died there on Golgotha. When Jesus died, I died. Why? Because the day I received Christ as my Savior, everything he did on his cross, I have been identified with. We have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The moment you save, you hear the gospel message, Ephesians 1, you believe you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You're baptized by the Spirit, and therefore you are identified with the person of Christ. So when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. In fact, the Bible in Ephesians 2 has us seated with him in the heavenly realm. It's an amazing truth that he wants us to understand. Verse 4, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there are two ordinances, and only two, that God has given his church. One is the Lord's table, the other is baptism. And each ordinance pictures all three tenses of our salvation when you study them. Now, often in terms of baptism, we think of just how it pictures release from the penalty of sin. And then if someone's maybe a little more astute as a theologue, they'll say, well, it also pictures that future resurrection when I get my resurrected body and I'll be like Christ. But it also pictures, as Paul argues here in the sixth chapter, this process of sanctification where God delivers me not just from the penalty of sin in the past or the presence of sin in the future, but the power of sin right now. And so he wants us to understand that there's some new truths, some new realities that we need to get a handle on. So that, he says, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And we saw there were two words in the Greek New Testament for new. One in terms of time, like a new day, and the other in terms of quality or character. And so this same word is the word for character or quality of life. It's the same word that's used when it speaks of us having a new heart. 
or in 2 Corinthians of our becoming a new creation, or in Galatians 6 and our being a new creature, or in Ephesians our having a new self, or here in newness of life. When you get saved, God doesn't just give you a fresh start. He gives you a brand new life. And he wants us to know that. That as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5 further explains. For, look at your Bible, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This verse is telling me why I can walk in a new life. If we are one with Christ in his death, if we're identified with him in that work, we are equally identified with him in his resurrection. Of course, there cannot be new life until you first experience death. And so there's an initial decision where you see that your sin is offensive to a holy God. I hear the gospel peddled under so many different marketing plans. Come to Jesus, he'll give you a better marriage. He will, but that's not the reason to come. Come to Jesus, he'll make you prosperous and wealthy. Not necessarily, he may cause you to lose everything you own. Come to Jesus, you'll have a problem-free life. Your life may get more difficult. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus for all these reasons, but the reason God gives is your sin like my sin is a heinous effect to a holy God. He hates sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And so there can be no new life until we experience death and we come to Christ and we trust Him as our salvation. So he explains further what verse 5 means in verses 6 and 7. He explains the significance of Christ's death. In 7 and 8, the significance of His resurrection. And then, uh, or 8 and 9, the significance of His resurrection. And then in 10 and 11, He bleeds the two together. Look at verse 6. Knowing this. Again, He's not talking about a feeling. Something we must know. Knowing this that our old self was crucified with him. Now, the older translations like the Geneva Bible or the King James would say old man. But in this day, wanting people to understand that this is a generic term, that he's not just talking about men, he's talking about women. Most of the newer translations say old self. But we saw that our old man or our old self, we studied it last week, is a dirty old man, a deceitful old man, and a dumb old man. And God says, knowing that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him. Why? In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, again, we need to ask an important question. What does it mean that your body of sin has been done away with? What does it mean that this sin-dominated body has been, as the King James says, destroyed. Well, done away with or destroyed might easily be confusing if you don't read it in the context of Romans. If you look in the margin of the New American Standard, that our body of sin might be made powerless. The ESV renders it that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's good because when you get saved, you still have your sin nature. It's not eradicated. It doesn't dissolve. It doesn't disappear. It's still very much there. But Paul wants us to understand that that old man, that old sin nature has been defeated. It's been disabled. It's been deprived of its power. And the only power that it has is the power that you give it. In other words, there's a choice that you can make. It's been made powerless It has been abolished, the Christian standard version says. It's been brought to nothing. It's been destroyed. Again, the Greek word does not mean annihilated. 
And so there are some people who go around saying, we don't sin anymore, we just make mistakes. And that when you get saved, you lose your sin nature. No, that's not what is in view. But it is rendered inoperative, which means that you now have a choice to make. Look at verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, you don't have to go around anymore saying, well, I'll never change. I'll always be this way. When you begin to run that tape into your mind, the devil has defeated you, and you have become like putty in his hands. And you're going to see little to no victory in your life. God wants us to know something, that there is now a defeat over the old fallen sinful nature, and we no longer have to be a slave to it. And so to help us to understand that, beginning in verse 8, he now elaborates on the implications of Christ's resurrection as it relates to this truth. Notice, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He wants you to know that this is not some temporary defeat, some temporary disablement, and you need to know that, especially when you are depressed and despondent in your defeat. And we're going to talk about the depressed, despondent Christian when we come to Romans chapter 7, when Paul says, wretched man that I am. He wants you to understand that this is a permanent uh, defeat over the sin nature. That just as Jesus is alive forevermore to live for God, even so your sin nature has been defeated forever. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, well, this is all theory. You know, I, I feel like, Paul, I'm just a big loser as a Christian. How do I make this work in my daily experience? And so we discovered last time one of the essentials to victory is there must be a new realization. There's something you must know. And a lot of Christians don't even know what Paul says here in Romans 6. But then he teaches there's a new consideration. Again, the first word is know or knowing in verses 3, 6, and 9. The second key word is consider. Look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Some of your translations say, even so, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. We noted last time that there's a colloquial usage of the word reckon. Do you think it's going to rain tomorrow? I reckon it won't. But the word in the New Testament has a whole lot more steel and concrete to it. He, he's speaking here. It, it's the Greek word logizomai. It means to number something. To number something. And God wants us to know that there is a truth that you must know, but then you must reckon it as true. You, you can count on it. Just like you can number two plus two equals four, and you know that to be true, and you can count on it no matter what. He is saying, just like you know that the old man was crucified with Christ, you need to now count on it. The first word, no, deals in the realm of the mind. The second word, consider in the New Testament, deals in the realm of the heart. What we would say today is a heartfelt truth, a heartfelt kind of belief. And so verse 11 is a turning point in the book of Romans, because up until now, he's been teaching us, teaching us, teaching us, but this is the very first command in the entire epistle. And the first command is to think, to reckon, to consider something. Even so, logizomai, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, he's already said in verse 6 that you should no longer be a slave to sin. 
Again, the thought is being freed from the control of sin. A slave can stand directly in the presence of his master, and if he has been a freed slave, that master can yell out all the orders that he wants, but that slave does not have to obey that master because that master's control over his life, the dominion and authority he had is gone. Now, if you want to obey, you can, but you don't have to obey. And so we are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, some Christians have just resolved themselves into thinking, well, there's a battle between my old man and my new man, between my old nature and my new nature, that there's nothing I can do about, that I just have to live with, until Jesus comes back. And Paul is saying, listen, you know the truth. You need to know the truth. You need to take that truth and then you need to let it reverberate in your soul and rewrite the tapes that were there telling you that you're a no good nothing. And you need to realize who you now are in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. How do you know that your sins are forgiven? How do you know that you're truly, genuinely born again? How do you know that you have a place in heaven when you die? Well, by faith, there was a truth that you understood that you're a bankrupt in God's economy, that only the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ could save you, and by faith you embraced it, you reckoned it to be true. You did that for justification. Now God wants you to do that for sanctification. You need to appropriate this in your own life. And so our slavery to sin is not mandatory, it's voluntary, it's based on a choice that we make. All right, now that's all by way of review. There's something we must know, there's a new realization. There's something we must consider, there's a new consideration. Third, as we break new ground, there's a new presentation a new presentation. Look now, if you will, at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its loss. Notice the verse begins with the word therefore. He's introducing the conclusion to his argument. He's giving now application. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its loss. Now, remember, unlike justification, sanctification is a process. Justification happens in a moment's time when you're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Sanctification is lifelong until Jesus comes. Now, please understand, he's not talking about sinless perfection. That will not happen until you're glorified. Now, John and Charles Wesley, great Methodist men who preached the gospel, believed that you could come to a point in your life where you would never sin. Now, they both openly confess they never reached that point, but they believe that you could come to that point. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches at all. And of course, their theology planted the seed for the Pentecostal movement, for this second work of blessing. He's not talking about sinless perfection. James says we all stumble in many ways, but I want to say this. If you're growing up in Jesus Christ, the kinds of issues that you should be dealing with today if you've been saved for a decade should be far different from what you were dealing with 10 years ago. There's a process of being conformed to the image of Christ where God shapes us more and more into God's image. And so there are some people who have resigned themselves and they say, Pastor, I just have a habit and I can't break it. I have a grudge and I can't let it go. I have an attitude and I just can't shake it. And if that's the case this morning, then verse 12 would say that sin has dominion over you. 
It is reigning in your mortal body, and you are obeying its loss. And God says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its loss. Now, when Paul gives the command, do not let sin reign, implied in that is that there is a possibility for sin to reign. And very often in the Bible, God will personify a truth. He'll make death like it's a person and call it an enemy. He'll talk about the trees of the world that clap their hands. Trees don't have hands, but it's a personification. And here he personifies sin as a master, as a powerful monarch. And he says, don't let this monarch reign in your life that you should obey its loss. Now, how does your sin nature find expression? Well, this verse reminds us, in our mortal bodies, sin expresses itself through our minds, through our hands, through our feet, through our bodies. That's how it finds its outlet. Now, one day, our mortal body will be glorified, and sin will be forever out of the reach of our bodies. We will be just like the Lord Jesus when we see Him. But in the meantime, we have to cooperate with the grace of God. Put out in the margin, if you would, next to verse 12, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. I want you to see the balance between divine sovereignty and providence and personal responsibility. Listen to these words. They're on the screen. Paul writes, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. He's talking about the athletic games in the first century. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, what does an athlete do? He brings his body under the subjection of his will. I had been studying yesterday for about nine hours, and I still had a few more hours' work. And my mind was stale, and I thought, I, I need to go running. Now, everything in my mind says, don't do it. Go lay down on the couch. But I needed to bring my body in subjection to my will, and so I went and I ran, ran five miles. Listen, if an athlete can do that, because he is competing just for a perishable wreath, that long after he's dead, no one will know what that trophy was for or whose trophy it was. When we cleaned out my mother's house, there was a whole shelf of trophies. There must have been 50 on there, and they all just went into the trash barrel, every one of them. A bunch of tarnished trophies. Those are perishable things. We are to discipline ourselves spiritually, in a way, for an imperishable wreath. One day, the weight of our sin will be lifted from us, and our bodies will be glorified and free from the presence of sin. In the meantime, we're able to persevere free from the power of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're in a study of Romans and are in chapter 6 and part 2 of a message entitled, How to Really Change. If you would like to hear this or any of the messages from our series in Romans, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for iPhones, iPads, and Android devices. Just visit your iTunes store or Android marketplace and search for the Search the Scriptures program with Dr. Carl Brogy. You can also listen or download this or any of our Search the Scriptures studies from our website, searchthescriptures.org. And of course, if you would like a CD or DVD copy, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 
and request part two of How to Really Change, program ROM29. And when you contact us, why not help support this ministry with a one-time gift or by becoming a Search the Scriptures Foundation partner. Foundation partners come alongside Search the Scriptures with a gift of at least $25 a month. As a Foundation partner, you're regularly informed of what's happening at Search the Scriptures through our member newsletter. Learn more on our apps at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, we conclude our look at how to really change. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.